Are we controlling from up here or back there? Are you switched up here? Very good. Thank you. Morning, everybody. So good to see you. I think I'm the third person now to wish you good morning, so you should certainly have a good morning. We're speaking it out. Good morning. So just a bit of a disclaimer as I begin this message. It is not one of my favorite subjects to speak on. Boy, that quieted everybody down. What's that? It is not persecution. That, yeah. There are a few. So, I don't like speaking about evil. I don't like speaking about our enemy, the devil. And yet, Scripture tells us we're not to be ignorant of his schemes. So, when it comes up, when God wants it spoken, you got to speak it. And so today, there will be a number of minor points, hopefully things we can tuck away that are going to help us when we leave. And then there's going to be one major principle that I hope will be very encouraging to us at the end and will equip us for what we may face in the days ahead as believers. So introduction and a brief review. Do you realize that it's been three weeks This is the fourth Sunday since we've been in our series in Acts. Two Christmas services and a New Year's service. Can you believe three weeks? Better yet, can you even remember it? I won't embarrass any of us, including myself. What was the last sermon we preached out of the book of Acts? So Art and I were here on Tuesday night for the uh, discipleship training class, and we couldn't remember last week's sermon. And that was only Wednesday. We had to ask Tiff to remind us what it was. So we've been covering the book of Acts. We've been through. We're including now up to chapters 23. We're through 23. We've been following the journey and the adventures of the Apostle Paul through all kinds of trials, turmoil, threats, trouble, life-threatening stuff. And this week's, this week's message as I said, will contain a number of just minor points we're going to pull from this passage and then one major point at the end. When we last left the Apostle Paul three weeks ago, he was on his way to Rome. According to God's prophetic word and God's promise to him, you will get to Rome and you will get there alive because I have an assignment for you in Rome. So he's finally directly on his way to Rome. But for now, he stopped in Caesarea. He's in a white-collar prison in the governor's palace. And he's awaiting trial when his accusers finally come from Jerusalem. You know the accusers. You know the Jews who had vowed not to eat until they killed him. Remember those guys? I wonder how they even had the strength to make the 65-mile trip. I'm not eating and everything for all this time. He must be weak. Or maybe vows didn't really mean much to this crowd. Maybe vows, making a vow, committing to do something, didn't really mean much to these guys that had vowed they wouldn't eat or drink until they killed Paul. So that's the first point of the message, and it's a repeat point. But it's something we need to get in the church today. It's better not to vow. It's better not to commit to something than to vow or commit and not fulfill it. See, we said this before, but we need to hear it again. God takes this very serious. He calls it covenant. When God makes a covenant, he swears to the covenant, he changes not. He doesn't change. We take it so lightly. We we throw around, we'll do this, we'll do that, and we don't really take it that seriously. It's better not to vow, not to say those things. You know, Scripture talks a lot about not speaking that much. Be quick to listen and slow to speak because there's great power in words. 
So it's better not to vow, better not to commit to something than to vow or commit and not fulfill it, as these guys did. Because, by the way, most of those accusers, most of the ones who were after Paul, those 40 thieves or 40 whatever you want to call them, those who made the vow, the Jews from Asia, they didn't make the trip to Caesarea anyhow. Paul even mentions them in the passage that they're the ones who should be here. If they're accusing me, saying I should be imprisoned and put to death, they should be here to face me. Don't we have some kind of principle in our judicial system that a man has the right to face his accusers? No, they had others go in their place. They stirred up others, and then they bowed out. And that leads to a second minor point for us, just a good practical thing. Are you listening? You never want to be the spokesman for the disgruntled party. Well, what do you even mean by that, Pastor? Disgruntled people, the grumblers, the complainers, the critical, the judgmental, the troublemakers, the bullies, they're always looking for someone else to carry their cause. Especially if they sense that you're a person who gets things done. And all of us are susceptible to that, susceptible to that. But for those of you in here who are leaders, you have to really guard yourself. Because if people feel they can come to you with their cause and you'll get something done, you're in grave danger of carrying the, the cause of the disgruntled party. Don't be the person who'll carry their cause. When they come to you with their complaint, with their concern, with their negativity, with their criticism, with that, whatever they bring, and they try to pull you into it and stir you up to take care of it, they don't usually ask you to help them. They are thinking you will take care of it. And they can bow out like these guys that accuse Paul. So when they come to you, direct them to the proper channels to air their grievances there. You're going to save yourself a lot of trouble. Nine out of ten times, are you listening to this? It's just very practical. Nine out of ten times, if somebody comes to you with a complaint or a criticism and you say, why are you telling me that? You should be telling whoever you're complaining about or whatever ministry you have a problem with or whatever it is. Why are you telling me? You need to go to them. Nine out of ten times, that's the end of it. They don't go to them. They just wanted to stir you up, hoping you would go to them. Are you following me? When someone complains to me about someone else especially, or a ministry in the church... I usually ask them, why are, you, why are you telling me? Well, because you're the pastor. Okay, well, here's my advice. Go to them. Go to them and see if you can resolve your issue with them. And nine times out of ten, that ends it right there. And nine times out of ten, I don't hear from that person again. I've been ministering now for 27 years. I don't get a whole lot of complaining calls because people have experienced the way I respond to it. And that's the way we all need to be. We'll cut down on a lot of this negativity that flows around and the strife that it can cause. I know I've told my leaders in this church this, but I'm going to tell all of us this. You, when you walk through life as a believer, you have two pails. You have a pail of water and you have a pail of gasoline. And when you come across a little fire, somebody bringing strife, bringing trouble, you can choose which pail you're going to throw on it. Are you going to throw water on it and diffuse it, or are you going to throw fire on it and fuel it? Here's the thing, too. The disgruntled party appeals to people with a savior complex. They appeal to people who are like, oh, well, I'll, I'll take care of that for you. I'll make sure you're okay. And that just builds your ego and your pride, and you're carrying all these causes for people who should be carrying their own cause. And usually there isn't even a cause. Sometimes there are legitimate causes. 
But we have channels for handling those legitimate causes and those legitimate complaints. Pail of water, pail of gasoline, somebody comes to you complaining about something, which one are you going to throw on it? Fuel it or diffuse it? All right, let's get back to Acts 24. How's that? Justin, everybody else, stand. Justin's going to read Acts 24, 1 to 21 for us. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer, Tertullus, to present their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges against Paul in the following address to the governor. You have provided a long period of peace for us, Jews, and with foresight have enacted reforms for us. For all of this, Your Excellency, we are very grateful to you. But I don't want to bore you, so please, give me your attention for only a moment. We have found this man to be a troublemaker who is constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. Furthermore, he was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. You can find out the truth of our accusations by examining him yourself. Then the other Jews chimed in, declaring that everything Tertullus said was true. The governor then mentioned for Paul to speak. Paul said, I know, sir, that you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years, so I gladly present my defense before you. You can quickly discover that I arrived in Jerusalem no more than 12 days ago to worship at the temple. My accusers never found me arguing with anyone in the temple, nor stirring up a riot in any synagogue or on the streets of the city. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. But I admit that I follow the way, which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these men have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. After several years away, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. My accusers saw me in the temple as I was completing a purification ceremony. There was no crowd among me and no rioting. But some Jews from the province of Asia were there, and they ought to be here to bring charges if they have anything against me. These men have, <coughs> these men hear what crime the Jewish high council found me guilty of, except for the one time I shouted out, I am on trial before you today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Thanks, Justin. You may be seated. So the title is Paul on trial. You know now, you've been with us long enough, these passages and acts, they're mostly historical. Luke simply gives us facts. He gives us informational accounts of what happened. They do lend themselves very nicely to exegesis, however. You've heard me say that word a lot. It only simply means that, that we give the historical information and the facts, then we make some commentary on it, which we've been doing, after which we try to make a relevant application. That's basically the way to work through these passages in Acts. All under the direction of the Holy Spirit, of course, right? Today's title, Paul on Trial, Acts 24, verses 1 and 2. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, arrived with some of the Jewish elders and the lawyer Tertullus to present their, call, their case against Paul to the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented the charges against Paul in a following address to the governor. So the Jews arrived five weeks later after all of that, or five days later after all of that unrest and mob and everything, mob violence that we saw in Jerusalem and the Roman soldiers finally got Paul out of there. They got him to Caesarea. Now he's in, in jail in Caesarea, although it's a white-collar prison. It's in the, in, the, in the governor's palace, and he's waiting for these guys to come and finish their accusation and for the governor to hear his case. Tertullus, they brought in the big guns, this Tertullus. The, the high priest was there, and he brought in Tertullus, who's a fancy, hot-shot lawyer. Tertullus is going to be their spokesperson, and he's going to lay out the case against Paul. So he begins presenting the case. You ready for this? 
You have provided a long, this is Tortullus speaking to the governor on behalf of the Jews. You have provided a long period of peace for us Jews, and with foresight you have enacted reforms for us. For all this, Your Excellency, we are very grateful to you. But I don't want to bore you, so please give me your attention for only a moment. Can I just be blunt? What a crock. They hated the Roman government. They hated this particular governor. He was ruthless. Now they're flattering him, buttering him up, so to speak, trying to gain his favor in the matter, sweet-talking him. Hypocrisy at its highest right here. I shouldn't even say this, but I'll say it as a question form instead of a statement. Is that what lawyers do? Listen, there's a point here for us. Hatred Rage, anger, jealousy, envy, it does strange things to a person. It makes you crazy. It makes you irrational. It makes you unreasonable. You can't even think straight. There's so much, all this hatred, rage, anger, jealousy, envy, and everything else in our society that people aren't even thinking straight. People aren't even making decisions according to common sense, let alone according to God's ways in our nation. Ridiculous. These emotions, if unchecked, will drive you to that and to do things that you would not normally do. Perhaps you've dealt with folks like this, irrational, unreasonable. And if you haven't, you probably will. As you begin to boldly share your faith in this world, you're going to run into people who are going to be unreasonable. They're going to be irrational. You're not going to be able to just reason them. Side note, we so need the power of God these days in the church because reasoning is not cutting through the seared consciences. Things that were common sense and you could tell people before, they don't receive that. Is that true? Just to be forewarned, so we're forearmed, we will face people like this as we begin to share our faith Take a stand for righteousness. The level of hatred, rage, anger, jealousy, envy, and the whole lot that we see here can make partners and allies of avowed enemies. There are people right now in our society joining forces that hate each other, but they hate something else more. In our text, they hated each other. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they hated each other. And they hated the Romans. But they hated Paul more. And they hated Christianity more. And they saw Paul and Christianity as a greater threat to themselves than each other. So together they turned on him. We have found this man to be a troublemaker. He's constantly stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the cult known as the Nazarenes. He was trying to desecrate the temple when we arrested him. They never arrested him. They tried to kill him. The Roman guard had to rescue him and arrest him. Arrest him to rescue him. The Jews never arrested him. Is that what lawyers do? They make things look good that aren't actually true? Not all lawyers, of course. Then the others chimed in, declaring that everything Tertullus said was true. I have to laugh at that. Tertullus said it, and they swore to it. <laughs> You've heard that expression, right? You'll lie, and the others will swear to it. The case against Paul is built on deception. It's built on falsehood. It's built on outright lies. Paul did not stir up trouble in Jerusalem. They did, which brings us to our third minor point on the screen This is evil 101. Evil always accuses others of what it's guilty of itself. Evil always accuses you 
of what it's guilty of itself. It's an attempt to make you look bad. It's an attempt to take the onus off of them. And usually there is a malicious hidden agenda. I'm always shocked. I shouldn't be. But I'm always shocked by evil's propensity to just outright lie and accuse and not even care or not even be bothered by it. Scripture says that in the last days, consciences will be seared, and I think we're seeing that. People can do things, and it doesn't even bother them because they have an agenda which rationalizes their behavior, an agenda that's not part of God's agenda. And one thing I would say to the church that I've said before, but it, it repeats, it bears repeating, as a pastor... <laughs> Okay, let's, let's make sure we get this right context. As a pastor, I don't really care if you sin. <gasps> what? You know what really bothers me? If you can sin and you're not convicted by it. Because then where's the Holy Spirit? That's a concern. We all sin. We've talked about that, I think, New Year's Day, how to, how to deal with our sin because we all sin. But when I have people in my church that can sin, 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 and there doesn't seem to be any conviction, now I'm very concerned. Where's the Holy Spirit in this? The Holy Spirit's role is to bring conviction of sin so that we can repent and change. By the way, I really do care if you sin because sin is harmful for us. I don't want you sinning. But I want to make, make you aware that there's something even more concerning than that. And as we look at our society and our world today, there is no conviction. Now, they're not Christians, but there's just no conviction at all of right and wrong. Uh, PJ, I think you were just telling us 66% of people do not be believe anymore that there's absolute truth. Truth is relative. Truth is whatever you make it. There's your truth and my truth. So therefore, if my truth is I don't like you, so I'll off you, is that okay? Just living according to the truth. I'm not even really being funny here. It could get to that. People can kill. People can do all kinds of gross things and not bothered by it. One thing that really gets to me is when somebody murders someone, I just can't understand how they sleep. How do you sleep after you took someone's life? And if you're not caught right away and you go through the holidays and you're living life as if nothing happened, how do you do that? How do people do that? Yeah, I shouldn't be saying how do you do that because none of you have done that, right? How do people do that? But I guess I really shouldn't be as shocked if I really understand the words of Jesus. You are the children of your father, the devil. I'm going to speak about that. There's a lot of misconception about this. You are the children of your father, the devil. And if you love to do the evil things, and you love to do the evil things he does... He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he's just consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If you think there's no demonic activity in the Western Hemisphere because of science and education and, and the academics and the medical field, think again. All this aberrant behavior that we see in our society is being perpetrated by the demonic because that's who they are. That comes from the kingdom of darkness. That comes from Satan. That does not come from the kingdom of light. That does not come from God. Man, Jesus didn't miss, mince words or hide anything about our enemy, the devil. The devil hates everything. He especially hates God's truth. He especially hates God. He especially hates God's people. We might as well throw in there, he hates anything good. He murders, he robs, he steals, and he destroys. And they're just the general adjectives or verbs, everything underneath that that he does that's evil. 
Remember Job? What Satan did to Job? It's interesting that if Job did not write the book of Job, he probably never knew it was Satan that perpetrated that on him. Isn't it good to know that Satan can only go as far as God will allow him to? Are you you out there? Because if that wasn't true, we'd all be dead. Satan plays for keeps. It's no game. You'd be dead. You're sitting here because God has not allowed Satan to take your life. But hey, if he does take our lives, it's all good. Then we'll be with Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So win-win for the believer, right, Richard? No loss here. To live is Christ, we're serving him with all our hearts. And if Satan or anything else comes in and takes our life, then we're with him forever, which is our goal. So Satan lies all the time. Those words of Jesus are strong. He is a liar. When he lies, he's displaying his nature. It's hard to believe that somebody could lie all the time. But that's our enemy, Satan. Now, lie is just one word that encompasses a lot of different things. Cheating, stealing, deceiving. Those who reject God and those who refuse to follow God's ways do the same. You are either, and this is where we're going to get into this, you are either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. Many people have trouble with that. Because aren't we all just the brotherhood? We're all sons and daughters of God. We're the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. That sounds so good, but that is not biblical. Oh, they're all, they're all children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Something we need to realize. Well, prove that to me, Scripture. Prove that to me, Pastor, because I've heard that a lot in my life. To all who believed him and accepted him, he gave them the right to become children of God. Not everyone is a child of God. Jesus called these guys in, in, in uh, John 8, you're a child of the devil. He called them children of their father, the devil. See, a fallacy that we have bought into, we're all just children of God. It's the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. This teaching is not biblical. It's false. It has led to all kinds of compromising truth and condoning sin. That's why we can't embrace it. We condone things, we accept things, we compromise on things that aren't pleasing to God because we feel we're just all children of God. Listen, because this is important. This is very important. And we were talking about, will you face people someday, maybe soon, that are irrational and unreasonable? You start talking about this kind of stuff, it will manifest. And it will manifest quickly. Being or becoming a child of God is a right. And it's given only to those who receive and become followers of Jesus. We are not born children of God. We become children of God when we are born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture makes it very clear. We're born with a sinful nature. A propensity to follow our father, the devil then we prove that we have that sinful nature when we're old enough and we begin to sin. Anybody in here never sin? All right, proving the point. We're born with a sin nature. Who here has had to teach their children to disobey? Who here has had to teach their children to be stubbornly rebellious? No, why? Because we're born with a sin nature, and we need to be saved, and then that sin nature 
he begins to work on that sin nature. We go from being a child of the devil to a child of God. And that's the only way you become a child of God is when you come to Jesus. This is a hard teaching for many people to accept, but it's true nonetheless. Until we come to Christ, we are children of the evil one. That's why, listen to this now. Something's going to make sense to you that maybe never did. Until we come to Christ, we're children of the evil one, and that's why if we don't come to Christ, we end up in the same eternal destiny as our father, the devil, which is the lake of fire. It's just a natural progression. God does not send anyone to hell. We choose to go there. We're born children of the devil with a sin nature. God's running alongside us our whole life trying to to teach us this and draw us out of that condition. But if we don't come out of that condition, we just follow our, our father, the devil, right into his eternal destiny, which is the lake of fire. And God's crying all the time as we do that. But he won't violate free will, and he won't stop us. We have to choose to turn to him. Well, enough on that. Back to the text. When these guys that were after Paul, when they acted in hatred and anger, rage, lies, deception, they were simply acting out their true nature, the DNA of their father, the devil, because they had rejected Christ and they had rejected his truth and his ways. And again, we mentioned, I found verse 9 very humorous. See if I have it on here. No. Verse 9 was where they said, Tortillas is saying this, and we all agree with it. Like, oh, okay, well, that adds a lot of weight to it. He'll lie, and you'll swear to it. So the governor then motioned for Paul. Tortillas was done. The governor motioned for Paul to speak, and Paul said, I know, sir, you have been a judge of Jewish affairs for many years. I gladly present my defense before you. So Paul begins his defense. There's not a whole lot in his address that we need to look at today for our our main points, except for two. The first one's on the screen. These men cannot prove the things they accuse me of doing. So in verse 13, Paul is trying to set the record straight. You know, there's a time to keep quiet when you're being accused. And there's a time to speak out and defend yourself. Don't allow your good to be spoken evil of. Second thing is this. After several years away, Paul says, I returned to Jerusalem with money to aid my people and to offer sacrifices to God. So Paul brought with him financial and material aid when he came to Jerusalem that had been generously given from the Gentile churches, and they were to aid the poor in Jerusalem, especially the poor in the church. And that leads us to our fifth and final minor point. Evil often fails to recognize, mention, or appreciate the good you do. Better get used to it, church. No good deed goes unpunished. That's sort of humorous, but... Evil will not recognize the good. So don't expect that, that evil is going to pat you on the back for the good person that you are. In these days, like it or not, God is calling the church to take a stand against evil, against unrighteousness. And it's not going to be a game, and it's not going to be fun, and it's not going to be pleasant. And I hate even standing up here having to say that to you because I don't really like it. Did you ever get what either you or or the enemy gets thoughts in your mind about what we might face? You ever get that dread that comes over you and that sick feeling in your stomach? And how am I ever going to, can I take me home, Lord? Bring the rapture, get us out of here? The days ahead, although in 2023, and I'll tell you more about this at the annual meeting, I'm so pumped for 2023. I believe we are going to see God do some just amazing things that's going to just blow our minds. But I am not saying it's going to be trouble-free. 
And I'm not saying it's going to be trial free. But God is going to, God is on the move and God is going to do tremendous things in 2023. But he's calling the church to get strong. How many times have you heard, be strong, be bold, be confident, be courageous, be very courageous. That's just not some kind of idle words God's throwing out to the church. He knows the end from the beginning. He sees what we might for him. He knows what we'll face for us. It's he sees what we might face. Those of us who walk in relationship with the Lord, those of us who walk in obedience to the Lord, those of us who are totally sold out to living for him in these days ahead, you might be able to skate by and avoid the trouble if you're mediocre, if you're languishing, if you're lukewarm. And in here, for most of our congregation, I know you can't be those things. You can't be languishing. You can't be complacent. You can't be indifferent. You can't be lukewarm. Because I've seen what God has done in your life. So since you can't be that, then we need to gear up, gird up our loins like men and women of God for what we may face. Too many kingdom hearts in here. Too many people who, who are ruined for the world and can only live for the kingdom. Well, that's why God keeps bringing, not just through me, but other pastors and prophets. That's why God keeps bringing this message to those who have vowed to serve him. Just be strong, be bold, be confident, be courageous, be very courageous. Acts chapter 40. Lord, Acts, Acts chapter 29, verse 4, verse 30. 29, 30. Lord, you heard their threats. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to share the word boldly. And when they prayed that prayer, the house was shaken. Okay, then, so that was five minor points. Now in closing, one major principle for us, and I hope it's very encouraging. It is to me. I actually had to convince myself of this principle just this morning as I was facing some intimidation in my mind. That's where the battle is, you know. It's right here. The things that were intimidating me have not even happened don't live in the what-if world, which it's easy to do. But I was running these what-if scenarios through my mind, and fear began to come over me. And I had to remind myself of the principle that I'm preaching on today. What to do if we find ourselves in a similar situation as the Apostle Paul in our passage today? Yeah, but wait, Pastor. Will we ever actually have to face, will we ever actually have to witness and defend our faith and our actions, ourselves as Christians, before civil authorities, government officials? Could that ever actually happen in America? Possibly not, but things are definitely moving in a very precarious direction for the righteous in our nation. But even if we never face the authorities, maybe that won't be our assignment. That was Paul's assignment. Maybe that won't be our assignment. We won't have to face authorities, civil authorities, government officials, or any kind of huge organization that wants to come against you. There is a good chance we will face folks. We'll face folks who do not agree with us. We'll face folks possibly who do not like us because we're Christians. And they don't like our God. And they don't like our values. They don't like our faith. They don't like his ways. We will run into folks like that. There is a good chance we'll be called upon to witness and share truth with folks who not only disagree, but may vehemently and irrationally oppose us, may even want to harm us. Sobering thoughts, aren't they? This is why this is one of my favorite subjects to preach on. And shut us down. I'm going to repeat something that I can't prove. That's never a good practice. But I've heard it from a reputable source. There must be this guy that they call the prophet. So I'm not going to give any names because I'm not sure enough. Prophet in a bad sense. Not, a pro not God's prophet. 
And this guy was saying that at some kind of huge economic forum of the countries of the world, that science is the new God. God is not all-powerful. There's no need for God. And his proof, science shut down the church during COVID. Science is more powerful than God. You know the first thing I thought? I will never shut this church again. We're not bowing at the God of science or medicine or any other God. We're bowing to God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we'll bow to. And that's who we'll follow. Anyhow. Just, I tell you that just to show you what's out there. Just to show you what's lurking out there as you go out and boldly, show, uh, boldly share your faith. Maybe it's still in that realm of the thinkers and that, the prophet and the global elites. Maybe it's still there. More and more it's trickling down through society. And people are starting to think like this. People who don't know God and don't follow his ways and don't walk in relationship with him, they're starting to think these crazy thoughts. And they're the people that God's calling us to share him with. That's the 100,000 we're talking about that are still steeped in those ways because they haven't yet come to know Christ. They haven't yet come out of that. That's who we're called to I don't really like the word confront, but it can become a confrontation. That's who we're called to confront. That's who we're called to confront the evil, not to confront the person. We're called to confront that evil and share truth in love. Always in love. People who share truth and it's not in love are hard to take. They're legalists. People who share in love and not truth will compromise anything and condone everything. We have to share the truth in love when we're out there. And if you're looking at me like, what are you even talking about? I am here to tell you that's the call of God upon the church, whether we like it or not. It's to get out there and start telling people about Jesus. The day of just sitting in the pew is over. Too much at stake. 100,000 lost souls on their way to the same eternal destiny as their father, the devil, the lake of fire. And nameless faces, that's not too bad, but you know a lot of them. Some of them are in your family. And God is serious about this. Church, not just our church, all of us as believers. So what do we do if we find ourselves in that position? We're up against that irrationality. We're up against that unreasonableness. We're trying to take a stand against evil. We're we're sharing truth and righteousness. What do we do? I got some really, really good news for us. Jesus' words. Look, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Okay, we got that. Don't worry about how to respond. Oh, thank you. Because I've been worrying about it. I've been building the conversation in my mind. They're going to say this, and I'm going to be on the spot, and I'm going to have to say I've been building this conversation in my mind. And Jesus said, stop. Stop doing that. And don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about how you're going to respond. God will give you the right words at the right time. Whoo! Come on. God will give you the right words at the right time. I had this whole conversation going in my mind this morning, which, of course, never happened. But if it would have happened, if I would just be quiet and listen to the Lord, he would tell me exactly what to say. Now, the question is, do you believe that or not? Yeah, we do believe it. But I mean, believe it, believe it, that we'll act on it. And we'll be trusting enough to say, you know what? This doesn't even bother me. I don't care. What they say, I don't care what happens. I don't care who it is because God got this. God got me. Easy to stand here and say it. It is not even you speaking 
Man, make this real. It's not even you speaking. It's the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus is sending us, believers, you and me, the church, into this world as corrupt and messy as it is right now. In the world where the lost souls are found, for us it's 100,000 of them living in our neighborhoods, working in our places of business, many in our own families. All precious lost souls. The unreasonable, the crazies, the irrational, they're precious souls to God. He's not willing that any should perish. So here's the major principle for us if, when that day comes. Don't worry about how to respond. Don't worry about it in advance. Don't allow that fear and dread to come over you. Don't get into the mind battles of what if. He says that, I'll say this. And then he'll say that, and I won't know what to say. No, God will give you and me the right words at the right time. For it is not you or me who will be speaking It will be the spirit of our Father speaking through us. Awesome, right? No worries, no fear, no intimidation. One of the enemy's key tactics is to intimidate us with mind battles and what-if conversations and what-if scenarios that he's building up. And we become intimidated, and then we'd rather just stay home than go out there and be a Christian. It's not on us to figure out what needs to be said. It's not on us to say the perfectly right thing, because few of us would. It's not on us even to convince them of the truth. Remember that. You may not be able to convince them that this is true, but you still got to take your stand. We were talking in discipleship training class about how will we teach our disciples the importance of the word of God. And my first point was we got to let them know they need to develop a biblical worldview. So that you know what you believe, you stand on it. Then it doesn't matter what they say or whether they'll believe you or not. If you're convinced of your worldview, which is a biblical worldview. That's what's happening out there now. The the conflict, although it gets down right to where the rubber meets the road, but the conflict is between two worldviews. A biblical worldview and a human secular or secular humanist worldview. That's what's in clash And we need to know we have a biblical worldview. It puts the onus on us to guess what? Know the Bible. How can you have a biblical worldview and speak intelligently truth if you don't know what it says? They're going to make mincemeat of us. And it does say, well, didn't you just say, Pastor, that the Holy Spirit will just give you the words? Yeah, I did. But you know, there's another verse that says the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance, meaning the word's already stored in our heart. And he's going to bring it out when we need it. He's probably not going to say, well, you never read the word, but look, I'm going to give you some scripture anyhow. He's probably going to say, you have little faith. Get back and get skilled in the word. You get plenty of opportunity in this church to get skilled in the word. We have Bible reads continuously. Since Labor Day weekend of 2014, we've been in some sort of corporate Bible read here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Those of us who are walking in relationship with him, those of us who are reading the word and we're boning up and we're equipping ourselves and preparing ourselves, then trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean to your own understanding. Steve, will you come? The rest of us will stand. Steve's going to pray. Sonny, you know the drill. Ron, will you turn the monitors on so we can hear the prayer? Father, we just come before you and honor you. We thank you for that word that you have given us today. Lord, we may not have experienced, I know we haven't experienced anything like what Paul experienced. But like Pastor said, Father, and we really need to understand that that day is coming. In all honesty, Father, I feel that that day is here. All we have to do is speak out in your name, and someone will come against us. 
Deborah just told me about a pastor. They came to him and asked him to speak before the, don't know if it was the state representatives or if it was uh, our federal government, but they asked him to speak and they said, we don't have any restrictions over you, but just don't mention the word Jesus. I mean, that's, what, that's what's happening in our nation today, Father, that as long as we don't mention the word, the name Jesus, it's okay. But if we bring up the name Jesus, and, and that's it. And the enemy, that's what the enemy wants. He wants us not to evoke the name of Jesus. Because the name of Jesus is so powerful. It is the most powerful name. The most powerful word that we could ever utter. You know, we tell our grandchildren when they get upset or they get angry or they get fearful. At five years old, at eight years old, we tell them, just say the name. Just say the name Jesus. And as pastor said, we were born, our father is the devil. At five years old, they learn to be that stubborn that they know that the name Jesus will make them feel better, but they won't say it. And that is the enemy. So Lord, I just ask that we are not fearful. Joshua 1.9 says, be, be strong, be courageous. I don't know the exact words, but it says, be courageous. Let us all be courageous that we can invoke the name of Jesus Christ in every situation, that we will not be afraid to, to speak out his name and to speak out above him, about him, to every chance we get, to everyone we meet, that we use the name Jesus that we can say it with proud and, and just know that you will give us the strength and you will protect us. Father, I just pray that for all of us because the day is coming when we are, gonna, we are not going to be able to be silent any longer. Because if we are, we're going to lose this world. We are going to lose this battle if we are silent any longer. So, Father, I just pray that you will give us the strength. Just give us the boldness to speak out your name. Speak out the name Jesus. 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 Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.